Okay, welcome Wednesday night Bible study, Epistle to the Romans, part two. Um, if you're listening via podcast, uh, my notes are right there where you checked into the podcast, so you can download the notes. And the notes that I'm giving you are basically my notes that I teach from. So there's a little more information there, maybe. I hope it's not confusing. But uh, on this session, I'll be giving you all of my notes. So hopefully that will uh, help uh, as we go through this. As I said last week, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans was to a church he wanted to go to, people that he wanted to go to, that he wanted to minister to. And this is his opening uh, volley to them. Basically, it's Christianity 101. That's why Romans is so important for Christianity, because if you go through the 16 chapters, 20 chapters, of it, whatever it is, that you get a real, the 16 chapters, you get a real handle on Christianity. It explains Christianity because Paul's explaining Christianity to Gentiles. He's explaining it to people that don't have the history of the Old Testament like the Jews. He's explaining to them basically from ground one. He's saying this is what it is. So that's why it's such a good uh, teaching model for Christianity. And as I said last week, what I'm going to be doing is highlighting all of the uh, um, doctrine statements. Doctrine statements, doctrine means belief. And it's doctrine statements that as a Christian we sign off on, we say amen to. They are not uh, up for grabs, they are not whether you want to, you know, I'll take this one but not that one. Christianity is based on doctrine statements, and to be a Christian, you sign off on all of these doctrine statements, and we're going to be going through them. And then each week at the end of the lesson, you look on on page five there on on the back, it says doctrine statements, beliefs, and so I'll be listing them. So when this is all done, we'll have a whole list of doctrine statements. Uh, that Romans points out that you can uh, go to and say, okay, this is what Christianity is. This is a Christian. This is what we believe. Because some people will say they're Christians, but they don't necessarily believe all of these things. Well, then uh, that takes you off the pages of the Bible. So this is solid Christianity. That's why I like Romans. So let me start with a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to go before your word. We thank you for those that are here in person, Lord, those listening by podcast. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher, uh, that you guide us into our question, response, whatever is needed in this uh, segment, Lord, that uh, you minister to us personally and corporately as a body of Christ. So, Father, in this we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the problems that were addressed in chapter 1, I put them there at the top of your heading because chapter 2 is going to be addressing those problems. So in other other words, problems Paul addressed in chapter 1 are, number one, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, when we're not following God, when we're not listening to God, you know, we're, we're, we're in unrighteousness. How can we now be about the truth of God when we're in unrighteousness? Uh, the second problem was that uh, the Romans, <coughs> excuse me, Romans, um, for those of you who can't see, I just took a sip of water. <laughs> uh, 
Romans should have known about God, but what they chose to do is they were not honoring God. They were more honoring creation than the creator. And so Paul says in the first chapter, you know, you're you're honoring that which has been created rather than the creator. Uh, and uh, so they got off into all kinds of idol worship and different things like that. <coughs> so the third thing was that they were wise in their own eyes. Romans, because they had philosophy, because they had all this stuff, because they had education and stuff, they thought they were wise in their own eyes. So it, it's kind of like this This happens, you know, throughout the course of history, uh, that, you you know, you had the Roman Empire, and you, before that you had, you know, Egyptians. They were wise in their own eyes. They thought they had it all figured out. The Romans did. Uh, the Age of Enlightenment, 1400s, 1500s, going into the 1600s, you know, People thought that because of science, because of education, you know, they could now figure out God and all of this stuff. That's being wise in your own eyes. The fourth thing down there in verse 23 of chapter 1 was idol worship. They were deeply invested in idol worship. The fifth point was they were lusting after their own hearts. In other words, doing what they wanted to do rather than what God wants. Uh, They were reproducing lies. You know, uh, from generation to generation, uh, degrading passions. Uh, the, the Romans and the Roman system was um, not only full of idol worship, it was cult worship, it was a lot of uh, sensuality, a lot of de- depravity was going on in the Roman Empire. And all of that leads to depraved minds, which actually means improper. Depraved means improper. <clears throat> So it's saying that that everything that you've been doing is causing your mind. So so in other words, your physical actions have polluted your mind. So in other words, if you do something physically wrong long enough, eventually your mind becomes depraved. And that's why people fall deeper and deeper into sin and lust or whatever it might be because the physical act of it now changes your mind and your mind now tries to find ways to say that that is okay. So now the mind becomes depraved. Okay, So now, in chapter 2, uh, what happens is, Paul's going to be addressing some of those issues, and then he's going to bring the Jewish people into it. Because this is the natural question. that When you first start to read the Bible and the scriptures, I know it went off... For me, at one point, all of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute, this is a, this is a Jewish book, so you know, especially the, the Old Testament, written by Jews, uh, carried around by Jews, and so what's with that? And so Paul does a good job of explaining why the Jewish people, why the Jewish nation, and then how we fit into all of that, you know, because sometimes people would say, oh, well, it's it's Jews only, and can we fit in? Or others would say, no, it's not Jews anymore, it's just Gentiles. And so that argument goes around in circles. And so Paul does an excellent job of talking about how Jews began, God worked through them, and, and different things, and how we're grafted in, we're brought into all that. So he's going to start that dialogue in chapter chapter 2. So, chapter 2. Verse 1 to 3. Therefore, you are without excuse. 
Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another. You condemn yourselves, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He introduces this idea of judging because they weren't really judging themselves but they wanted people to be judged by their standard. And what Paul is saying to them in chapter 1, and what he continues to talk about is, it's not your standard, it's God's standard. Right? That's why we're unrighteous, because we don't uh, match to God's standard. And basically what he's saying here is that we should be not outwardly judging one another, but we should be judging each other. I mean, we should be judging ourselves first. And this goes for the church. The church should be looking at itself. Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we still on the pages of the Bible? Because if you don't, uh, um, if, just to be a demonstration, if you were building something and it was coming up and all of a sudden, you know, you, you veer off, you have to have something that you look back to to say, am I still building it the way I should have been building it, or have I veered off? And so when we don't judge ourselves at, at any point, we veer off. And I think about this. If you begin to veer off the Word of God, and then there's a danger, you veer off of that, and then off of that, and off of that, and off of that, and off of this, and now you're so far away from the plumb line, it doesn't even look like Christianity anymore. And this is what happens... And this is what's happened to the church. This is why in the big picture of what is known as Christianity, you have all these fringe groups that say they're Christian. And how are they Christian? Or, in other words, when somebody says, you you tell someone you're a Christian or you go to such and such church and they ask you, well, what is your church belief? I just want to cry when somebody asks that question because, okay, well, for all Christians, we should all be believing the same thing, the Word of God. Scriptures don't change. What changes is us. We veer off the Word of God. So we have to make sure, okay, am I still following? Am I still building? Because at any point, there's a danger. We, we veer off. And then if we don't come back, uh, we'll veer off, we'll continue to veer off, and the next thing you know, it doesn't even look like Christianity anymore, it's, it becomes cultish, where it's based on something else. I always wonder if somebody walked in, if they would think, what the heck is that? <laughs> I mean, look at that, that looks like a, I don't know what that looks like, but anyway. It's like a commercial for <laughs> <laughs> This is what happens to your eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly, there, yeah, okay, yeah, this, this is it, the cornea's here, and I thought those globes, they have the electricity and you yeah, touch yeah, it. Yeah, 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 it's a, it's a Tesla thing with bad eyesight or something, I don't there know. You go. <laughs> so, uh, so verse 4, uh, it says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know, God is kind, and I put down there tolerant. I don't mean that he's tolerant of sin. 
I means that it means that we must tolerate others in order to get our message across. You know what I mean? We you know we know they're wrong, and so that doesn't mean we stop preaching to them. So it's it's tolerant in that way. But God is kind and He's patient. And I put down there, this is theology. This becomes part of the makeup of who God is, right? It's, it's a theological statement. God is God is kind, God is patient, but that's just part of it. That doesn't mean God won't judge. God will judge, but that's just part of the picture. But what he's saying here, he says that the kindness of God is what compels us towards repentance. And, and over, I don't know if you've ever had people that are kind to you. Uh, you know, it, it draws you towards them when they display kindness, especially when maybe you've been wrong towards them or you thought differently of them and then their kindness changes your thought. It draws you to them, but at the same time, it convicts you. You know, it's like my story when I was a little kid and, and uh, uh, I was over my, my my aunt's house. I must have been about... Uh, three years old or something like that and uh, three four years old and I was over at my aunt's house with my mom and I went to the restroom or whatever the heck it was and when I came back walking through her bedroom I saw this big bowl of coins big bowl of coins so what do you think I did loaded my pockets with those coins <laughs> my Levi's were full of coins and I came back like Nothing, right? <laughs> so they didn't pay any. They didn't pay any attention to me, and so then I got in the car with my mom, and now I'm sitting down in the car. So now the bulge is even bigger in the thing. And my mom looks down, and she puts her finger on it and says, "What is that?" And my response was, "Nothing." <laughs> and she goes, "What is that?" And she knew right where it was. And as she's saying that, she's making the U-turn, and I'm going, "No, no, no." I'm busted. And so I go back. <laughs> she takes me to my aunt. And she says, this is what he did. And my aunt was nothing but kind. She didn't get mad. She didn't anything. I, I, I emptied out my pockets, put it all back, lint and everything. I put it all back into the bowl. And she said, she told me, she says, she says, honey, if you wanted some money for something, just ask me and I'll, I'll give it to you. And I just, oh, man. I'm, um, you know, three, four, five years, or whatever the heck it was, and I just went, but it was that kindness, right? So I, I tell that story because that's that, that hung with me a long time. <clears throat> so what we're saying here is that kindness will lead you towards repentance. Yeah, I did wrong, and I did something wrong against you, Auntie, and I shouldn't have done that because you've always been good to me. You've always been good to me. That's That's what we're saying here. So it's hard to turn away from kindness. When someone is kind to you, how do you turn your back on that? Well, you just don't. And so for the Christian, for the believer, are we reflecting giving kindness? doesn't mean we become a doormat, but as we preach God, teach God, exemplify God, the kindness of God should be there in our speech and what we do, you know, that that kindness. So. Verse 5, it says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
The problem here is a stubborn, unrepentant heart. You know, that means an unchanging. So sometimes we have to rethink what it is we believe. We have to rethink what we're doing. Uh, look at it, you know, later as Paul says, you know, we have to renew our minds. Uh, uh, you know, to enter into repentance, we have to we have to look at ourselves as sinners, acknowledge that sin, because if we don't, there's no repentance. You know, and so what he's saying is the kindness of God, among other things, should cause us to look at ourselves and look at where we need to repent. He says, but because we're stubborn, we don't, and because we're stubborn, it's going to lead to the judgment of God, right? Unrepentance. So again, he write chapter two. He's really laying it out. We have to repent because God's going to come back. God's going to judge. So we need to repent. Um, so I put a question down there. It says, we don't want to change or it's hard for us to change. And I just put, why? You know, it's 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 like... Why is it so hard for 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 us to change or want to change? You want to take a shot at it? Human nature? Yeah, human nature, sure. That's part of it. Yes, that's a big part of it. Human nature, why? Pride. Huh? Pride. Pride, yeah. Yeah, I I did wrong. I messed up. I, I was I was, you know, how many people want to want to swallow their pride? And say, yeah, okay, I, I, I did wrong. Okay, yeah, I've been living my life for the last 35 years the wrong way. You know, or I was believing the wrong thing. Or even in terms of Christianity. Think of someone that has invo- been involved in a church that is so far away from the plumb line of God. They think they're Christians, but now we're preaching the gospel to them or we're, you know, telling them, showing them a different way. At some point... They have to turn away from the church that they grew up in, or the teaching that they grew up in, whatever it might be, in order to repent and come back to God. So think about that in terms of someone that has been involved in a particular religion or faith, and it shaped them who they are, and now you bring the gospel in, they now have to reject a huge part of their life. They have to reject a huge part of their motivation, and yeah, you know, that pride issue on that—that's, and then you have to, you have to. Uh, suppose you're the first one in the family. You're going to be attacked by everybody else because you're the renegade, right? You know, so yeah, pride is is so huge, and and whether they have a form of godliness or or, or not, it's it's you're, you're telling me I've lived my life wrong. You're telling me everything I believed is wrong is a lie. Well, yeah. But, because of God's kindness, we can repent. And he's not going to hold that against us. Right? As long as we continue to go. Any other thoughts on why is it hard? Because we're stubborn. Bottom line, because he said we're, we're stubborn people. Verse 6 to 9. He says, uh, speaking of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. This is talking about judgment. God will judge. Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and 
mortality eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Doctrine statement there, the guilty will not go unpunished. Right? So sometimes people think they're flying under the radar. No. No one flies under the radar. God sees it and it needs to be addressed. And this is this is the point of repentance in Christianity because sometimes, and I, and I have to really stress this, repentance doesn't get taught in the church enough or it doesn't get taught in the form of the gospel. What gets taught a lot of times in the gospel is Jesus died for your sins and Jesus, Jesus, which is true. But what has to be taught is why did he do it? You know, why did he have to go on the cross? Why did he have to suffer? Because I'm a sinner and because I need to change and I need to accept and I need to realize what God is doing and I need to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. So repentance uh, is is real big. That's why in years past, uh, I had a, uh, a professor... Uh, in, in in seminary, and his, his, he, he was an evangelism uh, professor and uh, in missions and, and stuff like that. And they asked him one day. The New York, no, the L.A. Times called him. They they were having a uh, a revival in town, a big revival, and they asked him. What do you think of this revival? And it was, you know, being held at a big stadium, you know, and a bunch of people, you know, they're out in center field and they're all getting saved. And he says, what do you think of that? And he says, well, it's a spiritual Woodstock. You know, when you said that, being from that generation, all of a sudden, he nailed it. Because what was Woodstock? It was a celebration of who we are as a people. <laughs> you know, it was all about us. It was all about the hippie thing, whatever. And in the in the point was what he was saying was that that no repentance is being taught. They're not really giving them the gospel. They're just celebrating to celebrate, and that all those people that get saved, when they track them six months later, less than two percent of them can they even find in a church anywhere. So 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 what is the point, you know? And the guy that was leading the crusade read it, and. Uh, uh, the two of them had a conversation, and what it led was, what it led to, was um, now that when they have those crusades every year, they integrate churches around the area uh, and people there, so that they can the people that now get saved as they fill out cards and they do things, they can now hook them up with a church, and then those people are there to help do that, and so. That came out of that, but yeah, he called it a spiritual Woodstock. So, uh, um, kind of interesting. Um, and then also, what Paul's talking about here is, you know, selfish ambition. Sometimes, you know, people think do things selfishly, their own selfish ambition. And you know, when it's selfish ambition, you're going to override what God says, because, or you're going to make it, make it, and twist it. So that it works for you, 
that's just selfish ambition. You know, you see that a lot in fringe Christianity. You know, uh, um, that's selfish ambition. So any thoughts, questions there? You probably want to know who that guy was that was sleeping the thing. Anyway. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now this is huge. Doctrine statement. There is no partiality with God. Because what is Paul doing? He's talking to Gentiles who've heard of the Jewish people, they've heard of the Jewish nation, they've heard of the temple, they've heard of their scriptures, and now they're preaching uh, from what? The New Testament Bible? No, it's not written yet. They're teaching from the Old Testament. So Paul's got to now bring them in to the Hebrew Bible. And so what he's saying is, don't let anyone tell you that God is partial to one group of people. We are the chosen ones only. No. There's no partiality with God. But he does say to the Jew first, then the Greek. That doesn't mean partiality or favoritism above anybody else. It's just that, chase this rabbit real quick, is that sometimes you can ask the question, okay, why did God work with just the Jewish nation? Okay, well, number one, he didn't work with just the Jewish nation, but he chose a nation of people who were the smallest around and who had so many obstacles in front of them, and he chose to, to, to reveal himself within their misfortune and, and with their, uh, their stubbornness and their unwillingness and God continued to work with them. And and because uh, when you read the Old Testament, if you were just looking at what kind of people are these people that God was working with, you come back with a picture of people that aren't always very nice. They were selfish. They were, I mean, think about it. God redeems them out of Egypt and brings them to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. And he's giving them all this stuff. And as soon as Moses goes up in the mountain, what do they do? They start worshiping the golden calf. They start making a, a golden calf. Why? Because Moses didn't take them straight to the promised land. You know, and, and you know, and all the other things they do, you know, and, and stuff. That that's one of the things that makes this makes the Bible ring true is that if you were making up a history for your own people, you would not make up this history because it doesn't make you look good. Right? What, what do people do that conquer other people? They rewrite history. Mm-hmm. And they make themselves look good. So this doesn't make us look good. Even as Christians, New Testament, it doesn't make us look good. Because we're what? We're sinners. We're heathens. We're, 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 we're evil. But out of God's kindness... A way is made to change that, you know, through Jesus Christ. So there's no partiality with God. And they put there in your outline, you are not God's favorite. You know, and so uh, we're all playing field to level. There's no partiality with God. And that's, that's a tough one when you think about it. Because 
even in family structures, you know, uh, you know, you hear those things. I always think of the of the Smothers Brothers routine. You know, well, mom loved you best, kind of thing. You know, mom showed more partiality to you. You know, and then the other guy was all upset with that, and he just just like he lived his whole life trying to get even with the other brother because mom loved you best, right? You know, and so with God, God doesn't love any of us best. He loves all of us. That's why uh, uh, God so loved the world. That means all of us. He sent his only begotten son. So, again, that, that says a lot about God right there. Again, that's part of God's kindness. So, thoughts, questions? Good. Verse 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, the law means the Bible uh, specifically uh, uh, the first five books of Moses, but the law is the Bible. In other words, God's standard, what God says. So, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will, will be judged by the law. So it says you're not going to get away one way or the other. You're not, because see, the, the Romans could, could try and plead ignorance. Well, we didn't have the Bible. We didn't. We didn't worship in the temple. We didn't do that. Well, in chapter one, he's talking about, yeah, but you have revelation of God because of what God has created, and because you looked at it and you didn't give honor and praise and glory to the Creator. Instead, you looked at it and you started worshiping what was created. So you're 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 sinning even with without the law. But don't tell me. God's saying, basically, don't tell me that you did not have revelation of God because creation gives us revelation of God right there. If you just stop for a moment and just start to look at why and how everything works together, you come away with the concept of creator. Again, it's, it's, it's when, when, when we teach um, evangelism, you know, when, when people have a, a, a problem looking at, well, a creator, how do you know there's a creator? And you just point to a building and you say, what does a building tell you? There was a builder. What does a painting tell you? There was a painter. What does creation tell you? There's a creator. So you just bottom line it from like that. Uh, For all have sinned without the law, verse 12 will also perish under the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So now that we know the law, we're going to be judged by the law. It's like, we know the law says it's a 35 mile an hour zone, and if we're doing 55 and cops are, we're going to get a ticket. We know that. We just take our chances, right? That's what's going on with eternity. People are taking their chances with eternity. Rolling the dice. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So in other words, it's not just about hearing, oh yeah, I know about God, I heard about God. It's, are you following God? Are you doing what God has said? In other words, are we on God's plumb line? Are we here? Or have we created an organization, uh, something that's so far away from the word of God, you can't even recognize it anymore? What's your thought right now? No? Okay. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. 
but they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience being bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, accusing, or else defending them. No, you, it's, this is the realm of the conscience. You know, you, 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 there's a moral law out there, by the way, which comes from God. And so some people will gravitate towards and do things good. But what he's saying is you have to look at where did that come from? You know, you have to you have to understand where that came from. Verse 16, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secret of men through Christ Jesus. So in other words, nothing's going to be hidden. We're supposed to be doers of the law. The doctrine statement there is judgment through Jesus Christ. And we know this is when Jesus returns, he's going to do what? Judge the living and the dead. And he's going to judge them how? According to the law. What is the law? The law is the standard of God. Uh, and so that's why I put in your outline there, use the law to preach repentance and salvation through Christ. So in other words, the law, uh, you shall not uh, uh, steal. Have you ever stole anything? Uh, yeah, it's like my, my story of my pockets loaded with the money. You know, whether I was three years old, four years old, or if I was, you know, as old as I am, I'm still stealing. Because sometimes people don't want to admit that they've stolen something as adults. But yeah, well, when I was a kid. Okay, that doesn't minimize it. That doesn't change it. You still stole. Have you ever told a lie? Because it says not to bear false witness. Well, yeah, everybody tells a lie. You know, you ever looked at another person with lust? Well, yeah, everybody does that, but, you know, it's no big deal. You know, have you ever used, used the Lord's name in vain? Well, well, sometimes I get mad and it just comes out, but I didn't mean anything by it. And so if Jesus were to come back and he was to judge you according to the law, which he says he's going to do, how would you stand up? And most people would say, well, I would make it through. And I'd say, but you just told me you were lying, stealing, lusting, blasphemer at heart. And God's going to judge you. And how is he going to judge you according to his law? Guilty. That's why we need someone to save us. That's where we need to repent of that. Because now that's where the conviction comes. Yes, I am guilty of transgressing the law. We're still guilty. But what happens is Christ pays the fine. You know. So that in, in a nutshell is, is the gospel. Thoughts, questions there? Good. Verse 17 to 29. Now this is kind of changes a little bit here. It's it's about uh, how the Jews don't obey the law, but I'm going to read the whole section here. But it just flows a little bit differently. It's a little philosophical kind of a little deal here. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, so who's he talking about? Jewish people. And rely upon the law and boast in God, know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Let me chase that rabbit real fast. Things that are essential. This is what we're talking about in doctrine statements. Doctrine statements are essential. Okay? Whether we wore a blue shirt or a red shirt to church, doesn't matter. Whether we stand up or sit down during praise, doesn't matter. What matters is, do you believe that you're a sinner? You need to repent in Jesus Christ. Those doc, those are essentials. That's what he's saying here. 
uh, verse 9, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For That's from Ezekiel chapter 36, by the way. For indeed, circumcision is of value. In other words, circumcision, understanding the Old Testament, coming out of the Old Testament, knowing what God has said. This is what he's talking about. When he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, he's talking about Jews versus Gentiles. Uncircumcision is Gentiles, those that are not of the Jewish tradition. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. In other words, it's not in name only. You're not you're not going to get a pass just because you can trace your lineage all the way back, you know, to Moses. It doesn't give you a pass, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So in other words, if you don't follow it, you're, you're just like someone that has been uncircumcised, that has not been circumcised, so what's the point? You know? In other words, it's, it's not by position, it's not by status. So again, he's making this clear to Romans who are Gentiles because what happened, a lot of Jews were coming up and they were, you know, going up into, into Europe because they were being dispersed out of, out of Israel and some of them have the notion, well, we're the chosen people and you have to be a Jew first, you have to believe as us, and yada, yada, and that's not the case. Because that's what Galatians is about. You know, he has to change that because people were teaching that. Verse 6, If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcised be regarded as circumcision? In other words, if someone who is not Jewish comes in and sees the law of God and says, yes, that's the standard. I'm going to live my life by that. He's saying, isn't that person going to be upheld as righteous? Isn't that person going to be a chosen person by God? Uh, verse 27. And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, through having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For if he is not a Jew... Who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. And he said all of that to capitalize it here in verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So in other words, God sees our heart, God sees if we obey. God sees if we revere his word. God sees if we are following his word. God also sees if we have veered away. Okay? On that. So, uh, 
you know, it's it's a hard issue. How do you see yourself? Um, you know, there's another scripture where it says, God looks at the heart. In another scripture it says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, we know the, the mind is here, but he's talking about his heart. It's where is your passion? What are you passionate about? What has now changed you? Because if 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 you in a relationship, uh, male and female, a, a female will tell you right away, I don't want to know that you love me intellectually. I want to know if you love me from your heart. Because that changes everything. Because if we do it intellectually, then it's because, okay, how can I position it? How can I work it to my benefit? How can I do this? How can I do that? How can I... These kind of things. But if it's in the heart, now you've surrendered. You know, and, and that's the whole point of Christianity. And that was my moment with God when I realized I was in love with God. I knew I was done resisting. Because up until that point, it was like, <clears throat> okay, I know about God, I go to church, I do this. But once I entered that point to where I'm now falling in love with God, I fall in love with His Word, I fall in love with who He is, now I'm willing to look at myself. Now I'm willing to judge myself. Now I'm willing to try and do and be better than what I was doing before. So in other words, I judge myself and realize I need to come back over here. And then I need to continue to build up on that. Um, so I put there in your thing, uh, what's going on in your heart. This is just kind of a, a little side thing on this, just to kind of get us to think about the heart. Uh, why do I do the things I do? You know, people say, well, it's not in my heart to do it. Others will say, it's in my heart to do it. What does that mean? It means you want to do it because there's something passionate about it. It's in my heart to do it. Or it's not in my heart. So therefore, I'm going to be stubborn and I'm going to resist this God you're trying to show me because it's not in my heart. But once it's in the heart, then it changes. That's where it comes from. I ask Jesus into my heart. Yeah, but technically we don't ask Jesus into our heart. But technically what happens is the love of God comes into our heart. And that now changes us. So, you know, um, what's going on in your heart? Why is it hard for me to forgive or change? Maybe I've been hurt, maybe because of this or that. Uh, think about people that have trust issues, and now we have to, the just shall what? Live by faith. And if we've got trust issues, how are we going to live by faith? That's hard. What if people have let us down? You know, everybody in our life has let us down at one point or another. How is it? Is it going to be harder to now believe and trust in someone you don't physically see? You can believe because of the scriptures, but again, it's a heart issue. Um, examine yourself. And then I put down their heart shaping. This is a teaching I've done, but bottom line is we're, our heart is shaped. <coughs> Uh, by our culture. What I mean by that, you're born into a culture and that shapes you right there. You know, the foods that you grow up with as a kid, the traditions you grow up with as a kid, that's your culture. 
That's that's just who you are. Okay, I'm half Mexican, half French, European, whatever. And but my father wasn't around, so I was raised in my mother's culture of Mexican. So my favorite foods are Mexican foods. My culture comes out of out out of that. That doesn't change. See, sometimes people try and leave their culture. You can't leave your culture. That's part of who you are. You know, you there's every culture has things that are not good. You gravitate towards those things that are good, that are loving, that are Christ-like, and you build on those things. And then your heart is shaped by your community. We're parts of so many different communities, we don't realize it. Right now, we're, we're a community right here, right? And our hearts being shaped by what? By what we learn, by what we see, by the scriptures. But we're also part of communities. Uh, for example, Phil and I do stuff. Uh, I do stuff for the city. He's done stuff for the city. He's done stuff on the state level. He does the water district. That's a whole different community. Their values are different. But we enter into that community and that shapes because we have to find the commonality or we work through that, but it shapes us. And we help shape that community. Hopefully we're helping to shape, shape that community more Christ-like. So if we work in a hospital, if we work in where, wherever, if we're going to school, that's, in, that's a whole other community. Uh, uh, even our, our families, uh, aside from our culture, are communities. So we belong to so many different communities, and each of these communities, as, as a teacher, Adrian has a, has a community of, of teachers. They see life through the lens of a teacher. It shapes them, and they're doing what? Trying to shape others through the lens of what? Education. And through the lens of what? Their, their specific, their specific uh, uh, area of instruction. For example, Adrian is... is her, her, her love is history. So she uses history as a launching pad to do heart shaping, right? See, all this stuff affects us as we, as we go through. Then there's conflict. Whether you run to conflict or don't or avoid it, how you handle it, it shapes your heart. Uh, we're, you know, we're this work of heart that sometimes people say, well, I, you know, I just, I just don't like conflict. I don't, well, you know what? <laughs> As soon as you come into this world, there's going to be conflict. So you have to now find a way to engage this conflict, and hopefully we engage it in a godly manner. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, self-control. Because if we don't, we're going to engage it a different way. So, you know, some some people, you know, are just, well, they say, I'm non-confrontational. Okay, but... There's confrontation all around you. How are you handling that? It shapes you, right? Or if you go right straight to it, it's that there's conflict in the room. I'm going to handle it. Still shapes you, right? Con conflict. Then communion. That's a relationship with God. How we see God shapes our heart. If you just see God as somebody behind the clouds that's not engaged in life, then repentance isn't going to mean that, that much, right? If you see God as non-existent, then the idea of repentance and, 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 and conforming to the scriptures, I don't need that. There's many roads to God. God is love, therefore God loves me and I want to make it to heaven. Your heart is shaped. 
right? We have to use the word of God to change that there. If you see God as just, you see God as truthful, you see God as, as loving, as kind, as God that will judge us, a God who, who loves us, a God who sent his only begotten son to die for us, then what happens? We conform to the scriptures, we confess, we repent, all of that stuff, our heart is not changed. That's why God's looking at our heart for the change. Because change into Christianity, and here's the danger, can sometimes be mental, and that's nominal. It's a name only. There's a difference between a nominal Christian and a, 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 a Christian that's been changed in heart. And, and I took a class that was taught by that same guy that uh, I told you was an evangelist. And I, I had a, an, an elective class to take. And his class was Evangelizing Nominal Christians. And I took the class just because I was intrigued by the title. And what it was about was it was evangelizing people in the church that hadn't really repented, hadn't really... And these were people that were in control. And this will cause an organization... You know, the people that are in control of an organization, whatever they believe in their heart, that's going to that's gonna influence the corporation, right? So just drop that down into the realm of church. Okay, so culture, community, conflict, communion, and then commonplace. Commonplace is that stuff that you and I do that nobody else sees. It's the faces we make in the mirror when we shave. Uh, for the ladies, it's the faces that you make when you're putting on your makeup. It's the, we know whether we pick up the piece of trash because someone sees us or we pick up the piece of trash because there's a piece of trash that needs to be put in the trash can. It's commonplace. Nobody sees us. Nobody, it's, it's just those things that are, are idiosyncratic to us. And, but it, but it shapes us. Because again, if I'm only going to pick up the piece of trash because somebody sees me, as opposed to I pick up the piece of trash because it's blighting my community, what does that say about me? Right? That's that's two completely different people. You know? Uh, um, Mary and I were, we went to some place and some guy was in his car and he threw out some stuff, trash out of the car. I, I, I'm sorry, but I have a problem with people that do that. You know, not just in my own city. We were out of our, our city and some guy did that. And, we, you know, without thinking, and this is kind of the problem, without really thinking, I saw that and I went over to it and I picked up the trash and I threw it back in his car and I said, here, you drop this. And she went, she went the other way. But... It was just a reaction on the inside of me that's like, no, you don't do that. You just don't do that. So it's the same thing with, you know, if, if I see trash on the ground, do I just ignore it? Or do I, it's, if we see the homeless person, do we do anything or do we just ignore it? Or do we judge it? Or do we look at it? Or what? You know, that's, that's commonplace. That goes on, you know, because we know sometimes... Some people are, are homeless for a reason. We also know there's other people that are scammers, right? It's commonplace. It's, it's how we look at it, how we appraise it, and, you know, we go from there. So this is how our heart is shaped. And, um, by the way, if you ever want to read a good book, it's called Heart Shaping by Reggie, Mc, Reggie McNeil. That's where I got all this stuff from. 
Reggie McNeil. He was one of the professors from uh, uh, from Fuller. He gave me an A, so he's one of my favorites. No, just <clears throat> but he has a book called Heart Shaping that really explains all this stuff. It's really an excellent read. Reggie McNeil, M-C, capital N-E-A-L. You can get it on uh, almost any place. Still in there. So, close this segment out. Doctrine statements. Jesus is Son of God. Now, this is what we've learned so far in the first two chapters. Jesus is the Son of God. Gifts come through the Spirit. We get to the Father through Christ. We worship the Creator, not the creation. The guilty will not go unpunished. There is no partiality with God. And Jesus Christ will judge us. Right? So all these things are here on your on your outline. And so I encourage you, when you read the Bible, and you get those statements, look at those statements when it, when it defines who God is. That's a theological statement. Uh, this is who God is. When it's now something that we are supposed to be believing, it is now a doctrinal statement. It is now something that we are, we are supposed to believe based upon our knowing who God is. That's why I do theology, because why would you believe in something you do not know? And so my point with theology is I want you to know who God is on Sunday morning or Wednesday or whenever I'm teaching. This is who God is because God is saying this, and if you don't know who he is, you're not going to accept this. It's easier to accept this if you know who God is. So that's why theology for me is so important. And the doctrine statements coming out of that, because again, keeps us on the plumb line. And none of us are perfect. We're all going to veer off, but we have to examine ourselves and come back so that we... Find ourselves back on the, on the plumb line of God. So, thoughts, questions on this? We good? Let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord, again, we just thank you <clears throat> for the scriptures. Lord, we thank you for the truth. Lord, it is uh, such a revelation that when we get to that point, that we realize that whenever we open your word, we are holding the truth. We are looking at the truth. We are receiving the truth. Lord, and may we understand the truth. May we believe the truth. May our lives be shaped by the truth. May our steps be shaped and follow in the road of truth, Lord. So, Lord, your word and you are true. You cannot err. And so, Lord, we just thank you, and we thank you that you not only so loved us, you sent your only begotten Son to die for us, Lord, but you also loved us so much, Lord, that you gave us your truth. You gave us that which helps us understand you. You gave us that which helps lead us to Christ. You gave us that which helps lead us to salvation, which leads us to the kingdom of God, which leads us to eternity. But, Lord, which also shapes our lives, Lord, that while we are here, Lord, that we can affect change, godly change, Lord, because of we know you, we know your way, we know what you expect, Lord, and we try, Lord, our best to follow your word and your example. So, Father, we just give you thanks, praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. See you next week or on Sunday or when we do. God bless.